My kids are 13, 11, 9, and 2. If I go back in time and think about when my oldest son, Michael, was about two years old, I was uh, at the changing table changing his diaper, and so I'm carefully hunched over the changing table, and then that little bugger peed directly up my nose. (laughs) I don't even know how that's possible. Uh, When my second child, Courtney, was about three or four, I forget exactly how old she was, it was nighttime and the kids were in bed and Deanna and I were watching TV and we heard some kind of noise in Courtney's room, but it wasn't enough for us to go check. It was just one of those things. But when we were getting ready to go to bed, you know, you kind of do the parent rounds in the house to make sure all the doors are locked and you check on the kids one last time. And I, I opened the door to Courtney's bedroom. And the smell in her room was so foul that it was like triggering my, my gag reflex. Courtney had vomited on herself. And it was like all in her hair. It was like a bad Nickelodeon joke. It was like all over her bed. And I, like my gag reflex is quick. And so I'm like... Like I had to send Deanna in. I don't know how she does that. But I'm like, I'm in the laundry room, like getting a t-shirt, wrapping it around my face, like I'm going to rob a train, you know. And, and here's one of the things I have never understood. One of the differences between men and women. If a man is holding a baby and it looks like the baby's about to puke, a man will hold it as far as away from possible and face it to the outside. Women will hold it close and try to catch the puke. I, for the life of me, will never understand that. All right, fast forward. My kids are 11 or 13, 11, 9, and 2, and I'm not getting peed on anymore. But the relentless tiredness that comes from the demands of parenting can be like a low grade fever that you just can't shake. Jim, Jim Gaffigan, the comedian, says it this way He says, You want to know what it's like to have a fourth kid? Imagine you're drowning, and then someone hands you a baby. Now, as we, before we move on any further, I want to give those of you that are younger, not parents yet, a little bit of some insider information, okay? So if you're a student, middle school, high school, college, um, here are some things you need to know about parenting, okay? If you're the firstborn, we're practicing on you. We admit it. If you're second, we're still adjusting to the fact that much of what we figured out with your older brother and sister simply does not work with you. And if you're third or fourth or fifth, here's a tip. You are the beneficiary of what we learned with your older brothers and sisters, and you owe them big because they wore us out, and you are going to get away with a lot more than they ever did. (laughs) This is the second week of a three-week series on parenting, and I think it's probably worth noting that the three of us that are the primary teaching pastors at Christ Community Church are in different parenting life stages. So you have Pastor Jim who has already raised his kids. They are now adults, and we have some decent evidence that they did an okay job with their parenting gig. Uh, I currently have four kids in my house, um, so I'm right in the middle of my parenting run. Jameson has a baby, so he's at the beginning of his parenting run. And, and I would suppose, depending on life stage, the angle, uh, our angles at talking about parenting would be slightly different just because of our stages of life. Now, one of the things I appreciate about hearing about parenting from people that have already raised their kids is that uh, they, they have a little bit of a different perspective. Even like when my own parents are laughing at me when I'm struggling with my own kids, uh, it's because they're not emotionally wrapped around the parenting axle anymore, right? And so they can kind of step back. They have the bigger picture. They can be more pragmatic, a little bit more hope, like you can do this. And so they're full of tips and because they're just not wrapped around the axle anymore. Uh, to my point... 
Last week we heard about intentionality, right? That we should parent on purpose. And, and I would agree with that. We can all nod our heads to that. And Pastor Jim and Sue pointed out four main areas for those of us that are parents to, to step back and set some goals in these four main areas. Intellectual, physical, social, and spiritual. Uh, now, maybe if you're a parent, you didn't get around to doing this exercise where you're challenged to think about these things and maybe get some targets written out. And so maybe you didn't get around to it. Deanne and I did this exercise, and so we're going to offer you our hours, our goals, as your cheat sheet, okay? So you can copy off of our work. Uh, here is our physical goal for our children. Don't kill them. <laughs> our spiritual goal for our kids is dump them at church. Our social goal for our children is don't kill them or their friends. And our intellectual growth goal is dump them at school. All right. Obviously, I'm joking around here, uh, but I'm joking around for a reason. I agree we should be purposeful and intentional. Uh, In fact, in my leadership in student ministries at Christ Community Church, uh, I often find myself saying kids are not just shorter adults. And what I mean by that is we shouldn't expect kids to function like adults. Our job is to help them become mature, God-honoring adults. But here's the rub. It's not easy right? I mean, if, if this was easy, then we wouldn't need a series on it. We would just all naturally do it by default. I was talking to a friend after week one of the series, and he said, quote, intentionality is a luxury. It's an interesting statement. And what was he saying? He wasn't saying that he doesn't think parents should parent on purpose and have goals and be intentional. Of course we should. He's just acknowledging that life is hard and complex and it gets fast. And once that train gets rolling, it's hard to slow it down. Add to, add to our responsibility as parents the demands of work, single parenting, health concerns, ministry roles in the church, financial pressures, our roles as spouses in maintaining a healthy marriage, our battle with our own sinful nature, and our often messy quest to follow Jesus. And sometimes I just want a nap. What if I told you that there is one overarching thing you can do that will cover all of the parenting bases? One thing to focus on that will be a complete game changer. Make you a better parent, help you breathe easier, and not carry around so much of the parent guilt that so many of us tote around like an overloaded backpack. What if there was one thing that you could focus on that would completely change the game? Matthew chapter 7. Turn, turn in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look primarily in Matthew 6 and 7 this weekend. Matthew 6 and 7 uh, is, gives us a piece of the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount found here in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Gospels, we have four of them. Most of us are aware of this in the New Testament. Gospels are biographies of Jesus. And so it's fair to say that you have these four different Gospel writers... Much of the same content you will find in the four different Gospels, but the Gospel writers arrange their content in different ways because they're trying to bring to the forefront a certain emphasis, a certain something that they want us, the reader, to understand and grab a hold of about Jesus. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, on a very basic level, Matthew wants wants us to think about Jesus as a king bringing a kingdom. And so much of the way Matthew orchestrates his entire gospel is all about Jesus being a king and Jesus bringing a kingdom. 
And so it's this idea of the rule of God, of, of us as human beings, as God's creation, functioning the way he created us to live. And, and we can all quickly recognize that this world does not function correctly. It is fundamentally broken, hurtful, messed up. There is so much wrong with us and this world, but it's not the way God created it. God created it good and perfect. It is sin and, and rebellion and human beings that have messed this all up. And what we find in the gospel of Matthew is Jesus, the king, coming back to restore God's rule and reign in the earth, and he's bringing with him the kingdom. And so we have, at the same time, this will make your, make your brain melt if you think about it too long. At the same time, Jesus inaugurating the kingdom of God. So Jesus restoring God's rule and reign on the earth. But also the kingdom of the world is still in place. So it is still broken and fallen and sinful. And so you have both of these realities at the same time. But one day, the only thing that will be left standing is God's rule and reign. The kingdom ruled by Jesus. That is eternity. And so everything else gets swept away. Destruction. It is all removed. All of the sin, all of the pain, all of the hurt, all of the brokenness, all of the rebellion, all of that gets swept away. And the only thing left is Jesus and God's rule and reign, his eternal kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew, this is Jesus talking about the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount are the ethics of the kingdom. How do people function? What do they value? What are the priorities of people that live in God's kingdom? So the Sermon on the Mount are the ethics of living in the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. This is an either-or proposition, two ways. Uh, Either-or propositions are certainly nothing new. They're all over Jewish literature. You can go back in the Old Testament, choose life or death, blessings or curses. We have two ways here. Jesus offers us an either-or proposition. Let me introduce you to somebody in my family. His name is Tickle Spider. And Tickle Spider can be nice. If Tickle Spider walks up to one of my kids, Tickle Spider can talk to one of my kids goof off with some of my kids, or Tickle Spider can get mean. This is Tickle Spider. And I'm sitting at the kitchen table with Tickle Spider walking across the table, and my son Michael is at the table, and my two-year-old Katie is at the table, and Tickle Spider walks up to Katie, and Katie immediately pulls out her two spiders and walks up to Tickle Spider with her two hands. And my Tickle Spider says to her two little spiders, I'm Tickle Spider. Are you a nice spider or a mean spider? To which my two-year-old responds, Yep. (laughs) So I looked at my son and I said, perhaps the two-year-old does not grasp the nuance of an either-or proposition. (laughs) On my way home every day from church to home, there is a road sign. And it's an interesting road sign to me. And so I want to show you some road signs. Uh, Top center is the road sign that I see every day on my way home. What is the difference between that road sign and just about every other road sign you see on the road? It never dawned on me until a few days ago when my son and I were joking about this sign. Almost every road sign on the road is telling you one specific thing it wants you to do. Stop, don't go over this speed limit, yield one way, right? Like most road signs are telling you one thing. And then you have this odd road sign that's just being courteous. I just want you to know you have an option here. 
Well, thank you, road sign. If you weren't there, I'd probably drive through the back of my neighbor's house. I don't... Either or propositions. So we find in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus saying, this is an either or proposition. There are two roads. Choose one. And then as you keep reading in the Gospel of Matthew, immediately following the choice of two roads, you have two trees bearing good fruit and bad fruit, continuing this either or kind of thing. And then you have true disciples and false disciples. And then you have two builders. And then throughout the rest of the Gospel, you find the presentation of people either following Jesus or rejecting Jesus. The entire Gospel of Matthew, it's fair to say, is about Jesus as king, bringing God's kingdom, and all of it being a massive either-or proposition. Are you going to follow him or not? And in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, choose the narrow way or the wide path. The wide path leads to destruction. Why does the wide path lead to destruction? Well, I already told you why. Because ultimately one day, everything outside of God's kingdom gets swept away. So ultimately, from an eternal perspective, the wide path is not the path to take. Because choosing the wide path means that you are saying, I'm not following Jesus. I'm totally okay living outside of God's kingdom, outside of God's rule and reign over my life. And so I'm going to step back and be outside of all of this. And Jesus is saying, if you choose that way, you're ultimately choosing destruction. But narrow is the way that leads to life. Follow me. Recognize me for who I am and live life the way I intended it to be lived. There's the narrow choice, and there's the wide choice. And we, and we often immediately quickly go to, well, how wide is wide and how narrow is narrow, right? Like, so if narrow is the way, then are you telling me that it's going to be the minority that actually end up in the kingdom of God? And so then we struggle with this. And I want to remove that question from the table for this conversation and simply point out that one of the things that makes the narrow way the narrow way is that it's the more difficult way. You know, people will often say, well, if you need Jesus as your crutch to make your life more simple, then God bless you. And I want to say, I have found following Jesus not too easy. It has made my life more complex. It has brought pain into my life that probably would not be there if I wasn't following Jesus. Now, the wide way is not pain-free, right? There's, either way, life is going to be hard and complex and painful and difficult, The narrow way has some, following Jesus has some complexities to it and some difficulties to it um, that often make people just say, you know what, it's easier to just go into default mode and just go with the crowd. And, And now I'm back to what I really appreciated about Jim and Sue in week one is this whole idea of intentionality. If you're not intentional, if you're not making choices on purpose to follow Jesus, then you will just end up getting sucked into the world, sucked into the culture, essentially doing what everybody else does because wide is the path and the, the momentum of our culture will just pull you in that direction. So Jesus gives us an either or proposition. Are you going to follow Jesus or are you not? Are you going to be in the kingdom or are you going to be out? This is the one overarching decision I was talking about. This is the game-changing decision. Which way you choose matters because, point two in your notes, you teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. Just think trajectory here. Your kids, parents, for better or for worse, are becoming like you. You know this to be true, Because for better or worse, there are lots of things about your parents that define your life. 
our kids, for better or worse, are becoming like us. And if you're not a parent, I just want to point out here, this, this is true of any relationship where a lot of time is spent around each other. And if, if you want to have... If you want to be influential in a positive, God-honoring way, then you need to listen to these kinds of things that Jesus instructs us towards in the Sermon on the Mount. So in a nutshell, instead of getting like super practical nuts and bolts with every possible parenting topic we can talk about, I want to broaden it and simply say this to parents. Become the person you want your kids to be. Become the person you want your kids to be. Follow Jesus. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, talking about raising kids in the faith in a God-honoring way, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. You know, often when we think about this idea of like discipling our children or raising our children or being the spiritual leaders in our household or when, we're, when us as dads are told you should be the spiritual leader in your family, we can nod to it. We understand it in theory, but the question still remains, how do I do that? Like, can someone please just hand me a manual? And one of these things that Deuteronomy is coaching us towards here is, you know, raising your kids is part of the, the natural offspring of your life. In other words, if you're, if you're intentionally living your life in a God-honoring way, then essentially in the course of doing that, in the course of following Jesus, in the course of living your life oriented by the kingdom of God and Jesus as king, as you live your life, simply explain these things to your children. So if you're making a certain set of decisions about how you handle money or how you handle your stuff or why you're saying no to this and yes to that, if in the course of your life you're making certain choices because of Jesus then you just explain this to your kids. It's just the natural conversation that you're having with these younger humans that are living under your roof. So it's not so much about compartmentalizing everything and, and always thinking about, like, i got to do this and, this and this and this and this and this and this. What if just in the general course of your life, you recognize that your kids are watching and imbibing everything about how you behave, and you could just be offering some explanation even explanation when you screw it up, right? So you look at one of your kids who you know are watching, they hear you on the phone with something or they see you do something and, and you say, you know what? Here's the deal. What, what I just did there wasn't right. I knew it wasn't right when I was doing it. You know, so, so a few days ago, Michael and I are shopping and I started making fun I started making fun of something with Michael and it was funny for about five minutes, but I kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and then eventually I realized that I really just annoyed him. Like, I ticked him off. And so I just walked into his room and I just, I just apologized. I said, look, I was having fun with you. I realized I pushed it too far. I didn't mean to annoy you like that. I'm just sorry. And those kinds of things, as you're just living your life following Jesus, offering explanation for why you're making the kinds of choices you are making in the course of your life following Jesus, is... Good parenting. Just offer explanations to your kids. I find myself doing this regularly with my kids. You know, because you always get the classic, well, those kids have this, or those kids that, or those parents let them do that. And my, my answer always is, we follow Jesus. 
or I follow Jesus. My kids ultimately have to make that choice for themselves. I follow Jesus. Their mom follows Jesus. So we make a certain set of choices. We have certain priorities, kingdom-based priorities, and my kids are figuring out what that looks like as they watch our lives. The good and the bad of it. The, the clean of it and the messiness of it. In our student ministries manuals, uh, we talk about the character of everybody that works in our student ministries department, middle school, high school, and college. And there's a poem in there. And, and I think this is especially helpful for those of us that are dads, where we're constantly told you're supposed to be the spiritual leader in your house. And we scratch our heads and we say, well, what does that look like? What are the things I need to do? Thank you for telling me that, but what should I do to be that man? Listen to this poem, guys. This is by Edgar Guest. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely show the way. The eyes of better people and more willing than the ear find counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. I soon can learn how to do it if you let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lectures you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. For I might misunderstand you in the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. And so my charge to all of the men, if you want to be spiritual leaders in your home, is choose. Follow Jesus. And then recognize the mess of it and the imperfection of it. And when you do great, look at your kids and say, do it the way dad did it. And when you screw up, say, don't do it the way dad did it. But deep down in my heart, I'm a follower of Jesus. Spiritual leadership in your home has everything to do with the kind of example you're setting. Which gets us to point three in your notes, because this weekend is about the courage to say no. And no is such a negative word, but I actually think it's one of the most positive words on the planet for this reason. Every yes is a no, and every no is a yes. Here's what I mean by this. Just think basic budgeting. Say I give you $10. You can spend the $10 however you want. And you come over here and you spend that $10 on this certain something. As soon as you say yes to that certain something, you know what you've said no to? Everything else. Because I'm spending my 10 bucks right here. But if you say no to that certain something, you're possibly saying yes to all of these options. Right? Every yes is a no, and every no is a yes. When you say no to something, you're saying yes to something else. And when you say yes to something, you're obviously saying no to something else. And once again, here here we have either-or propositions. Every time we say no, we're saying yes. And so it's not quite as negative a thing. But what I want to point out again, and I think you're picking up on this already and how I'm approaching this topic, is the courage to say no as parents is all wrapped up in our own discipleship. Whether or not we are choosing the narrow road, whether or not we are citizens of the kingdom, whether or not we are following Jesus, and if that is true of me, then there are certain things I'm going to say no to simply because I'm following Jesus. And I want to look in the Sermon on the Mount here, and I just want to pull out three things that Jesus says to all of us, parents or not parents, where he's saying, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to choose the narrow road, if you're going to live your life the way God intended it to be lived, if you're not just going to kind of go with the worldliness of the crowd and just go into default mode and just get sucked with everything else that's going on, then you have to intentionally say no to certain, certain things. I just want to look at three of those certain things. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus here is saying, telling us to say no to short-sighted worldliness. The temptation to grasp at what's staring us right in the face, the, the, the temporary stuff, it's, it's the clothes, it's the stuff, it's the electronics, it's everything that the commercials are telling us we need to have to be happy. Beyond the stuff, it's the status, it's the, it's the I need to be the best athlete, I need to be the first chair in the band, I, right? And so we're striving after all of this temporary stuff, mostly talking about love of wealth here, where Jesus is saying, like, you're going you're gonna to spend the best effort of your life just trying to accumulate things? For what purpose? What are those things going to get you ultimately? Right? You know and I know that you buy that thing that you really, really want, and it brings you a certain level of satisfaction for a few days, and then you need the next thing. We know how empty the promise of wealth and accumulation is, but we keep going after it and keep going after it and keep going after it. And that's the wide path. When you live your life chasing those things, temporary wealth, temporary status. Now, following Jesus does not always mean a vow of poverty, but it is certainly a life that isn't consumed by accumulation and striving for status. And we have to be very, very careful, especially in the American culture, that we as adults don't get sucked into that because if we get sucked into it, the next generation is coming right behind us. And at some point, somebody has to put, put their feet firmly on the ground and say, my eyes are fixed on Jesus, I am taking the narrow road, and I will not live my life like everybody else. I will follow Jesus. And in the course of doing so, your kids will see that, And they will understand also what it means to follow Jesus so that they can make a a true, genuine choice about whether or not they will follow Jesus. We all know this. We we know our kids don't need more stuff. We know it because it doesn't deliver what it promises. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, it asks this question, "What What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Engaging in betrayed, trading away our lives, trading away our souls just for more stuff, for status, for things. Oh my gosh, why do we do that? I'm tempted, you're tempted, we're all tempted, and Jesus says, take the narrow road. And one of the ways I talk about this with high schoolers is uh, I had this interesting moment when I graduated from high school. You know, because when you're in high school, there are, there are certain things that are important, right? Like, the, 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 the social nature of high school and the pecking order and what, what clique you're in and are you popular or are you not popular and things like the kinds of clothes you wear and the kind of car you drive and whether or not you're an athlete or whether... All of those things dominate the way you think when you're in high school. And you're so wrapped up in it. But I remember being at my high school graduation... In that moment where you throw your cap in the air, and I remember throwing that cap cap in the air and thinking to myself, I think I just wasted four years of my life. Because it was like, as soon as that cap gets thrown in the air, it's like someone takes a big eraser and says, hey, guess what? None of that stuff matters. 
If you want proof of that, high school students, I challenge you to wear your high school varsity jacket at the college campus in the fall. (laughs) Nobody gives two cents about your popularity in high school, your athletic achievements, how cool you were, what kind of car you drove, what kind of clothes you wore, if you had the coolest backpack or not. Nobody cares. When you throw that gap in the air, it's like an eraser comes along. And all of, that te- all of that temporary, artificial, superficial stuff just gets wiped away. Don't waste your life. And I'm saying that to students. I'm saying that to parents. Take the narrow road. The next thing we say no to is worry. Matthew chapter 6, uh, starting verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. I'm pretty sure that one of the reasons we are so busy is because we worry so much. Let me me make my case here. Worry continually drives us to try to meet our perceived, our own perceived needs and our perceived needs of our kids. I'm so worried about my kid's success that I'm so worried about his grades. So I have to to make sure, I have to run from here to there. I have to make sure that my kids have a certain grade point average because I need them to get into a good college. I need them to get into a good college because I need them to get a good career because if they don't get a good career, they won't have enough money. And I'm so worried about their future financial stability and their future success that I'm running here, there, and everywhere. And oh my gosh, I need scholarships too. So I need to make sure my kids thrive in athletics and they can't play on the varsity team in high school because their ridiculous coach says that they also have to play club or travel. And so now I have to pay $14,000 for my kid to play on the travel team just so they have a chance to try out for the high school team, just so a college scout might look at them one day and maybe give them a few thousand dollars so they can go to the college I wanted to go into because I'm so worried about their financial stability in the future. And this worry has me running and 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 running. Why? Why? Do we really believe that? Do we really believe that our kids are going to be abject failures, completely disowned by God, if they don't get into a good college? Maybe we've painted the wrong targets. Maybe we need a a, a course correction here when it comes to following Jesus, where Jesus says, living your life the way I intended it to be lived is primary. Everything else will be taken care of in the course of doing that. You can trust God to do that. But if our target is, well, I don't want my kids to look like they're a little bit of an outsider because they don't wear the same clothes as everybody else. They don't shop at the same stores. I need my kid to have a certain car because all the other kids have it. I need my kid to have a certain phone. I need Because you don't want what? You don't want your kids to stand out. I, I, love, I, love, the, I, I love the tension that we, we somehow, this artificial tension we've created where we're all, we'll all say, I want my kids to be unique and stand out. But then we're so worried that they'll be unique and stand out and they'll take some crap for it that we do everything we know how to do to shelter them from that. 
well, which way do we want this? I know what I want for my kids. I want my kids to choose the narrow road. I want my kids to follow Jesus. And I know they don't understand every choice Deanne and I make as parents. I know that they, they don't fully grasp the implications of all of this. But quite honestly, I don't care if my kids have to face some tension because life is full of it. Full of tension, full of difficulty, full of people mocking and making fun of and not understanding your life choices. And I don't make my decisions based on that. I do my very best to make the kind of decisions I see Jesus coaching us towards in the Sermon on the Mount. James chapter 4 verse 14 says it this way. I'll wait him out. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You know, this is connected to the worry busyness thing. In our worry, we're busy making plans and we're busy getting busy because we're so worried about so many things that we're running around and we're running around and we're running around. And it's quite possible that in our busyness, we're doing things that I guess you could attach some value to but in that busyness that is perpetuated by worry, we're not doing the most important things. I'm not saying athletics are bad. I'm just saying there are some things more important. I'm not saying having nice clothes is a bad thing. I'm just saying at a certain point, enough is enough. And we're, we're, we get so fast and so busy that every once in a while we just got to hit the pause button and slow down and just take a look at it and say, okay, what's really going on here? And am I missing some priorities? Now, I'll give two. This isn't the most nuts and bolts-ish type parenting message you're ever going to hear, but I'll give you a few nuts and bolts here. Uh, I'll, I'll say two that I personally believe are super important. And I think I could, if I had the time, I could give you all kinds of research that could back up what I'm saying. Uh, eating dinner together as a family is very, very important. I have never met anyone in the field of child psychology, adolescent development, family systems that would not point to sitting down around the dinner table and say, you've got to do that. You've got to make that a priority. I know it's not easy with sports schedules and school schedules and all of that, but I stand before you honestly and say, at least five nights a week, my family is at the dinner table. So I'm not standing up in front of you hypocritically saying, do it. What I'm saying is, I'm a parent. I have four kids. I'm in that race. And we sit at the dinner table five nights a week. And that means we have to say no to some things. Sometimes my kids say, can I go to my friend's house or can I do this? And we say no. And they say, why? Is it because we're eating dinner as a family? Oh, they don't always like it, but they also don't fight us on it. Eating dinner as a family. And the other one is getting to church together regularly. Being a part, a, a regular part of a community of faith. Not thinking of Christianity or church as a nice add-on to a well-rounded development of a child, right? So I want them to have athletics, and I want them to be in school, and I have to throw in some church because I want them to at least know how to spell God. And, and some of us approach it like this, right? And here's how I know that. Because sports wins all the time. I can show you student ministries attendance records, kids world attendance records, weekend worship attendance records, and I can tell you without a doubt that in the American culture that we have bought into the idea that sports reign supreme, and we are quite often as parents guilty of just letting coaches dictate our schedules. My son plays soccer right now, 
At the beginning of the season, the coach said, we will practice on Mondays and Wednesdays. We immediately told the coach, our son will not practice on Wednesdays. Why? Because he's at our middle school ministry around other middle school students that are trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus. And we are here together trying to do this thing as a family in the community of faith. Regular participation, gathering with the believers on the weekend, figuring out how to get into a community group or student ministries or Awana midweek. All of this stuff is very, very important. Once again, I know it's not easy to negotiate all of those schedules. There are choices to make around every corner. I get it. I'm in it. And I'm simply asking you to fight the fight. Don't just wave the flag and go the wide route. At least stand and fight. Think about it. Talk about it. Engage in the battle to help be an example to show your kids what it means to follow Jesus. As my kids were in elementary school, I used to always tell my wife, I have no idea what to do with these kids. I just don't understand a second grade girl. You know, and so I'm looking at Deanne sometimes completely befuddled, like, what do I do right now? And Deanne is standing behind Courtney going, hug her. Just hug her. Oh, okay. Okay, I'll hug her. Right? I had no idea what to do. But I used to always tell my wife, I can't wait till my kids get to be middle school age or older because I've been doing student ministries for two decades now and I know exactly what to do with a middle school or high school student. (laughs) I've studied it. I'm in it. I know it. I know his thoughts before he thinks them. I know how he's going to behave. I am so well prepared for my kids being in middle school and high school. I am all over that age stage. And here's what I want to say to you parents. Pastor Jim said it last week and I want to reiterate it. Some of the best parent training you could ever get will be to volunteer in Kids World or Student Ministries. To be around the age of the kids that are in your house, to meet their friends, to be trained by people that have been doing this for decades, to just be in that world, to understand the world, to stay engaged. I think it's some of the best possible parent training you can receive. I'm living proof of it. I'm way better with my kids once they hit middle school than I ever was when they were in elementary school. So I want to offer you this opportunity right now. I'm going to put some information on the screens. Right now, pull out your tablets or your cell phones. We're going to do this right now. I give you permission to play on your electronic devices. If you will send a message, just write serve and then your name. We want to have a conversation with you. If you're sitting here thinking as a parent, that makes some sense, but I'm not sure I would be good at any of that. Here's what I want to say. First of all, if you don't think you'll be good at it, you're the kind of person we love in student ministries. Everybody that like walks up to us and says, I'm God's gift to working with middle school students normally ends up to be a train wreck. <laughs> but anyone that walks up to us and says, like, I'm willing, I'm not sure if I'll be any good at it. If you'll train me, I'll give it a go. They're normally almost always our best leaders. And so if you're immediately thinking to yourself, I, I'm going to sideline myself right now, I want to say you would be a primary candidate for this. Okay? This isn't signing up for anything except to say, I am personally committing to this, and Randy, who is, Randy oversees birth through fifth grade at all Christ Community Campuses. I oversee middle school, high school, and college for all Christ Community Campuses. If you send us a message, what we are committing to is we will personally get back to you with a follow-up conversation to at least help you explore the idea. That's all this is. And you can do this right now. You can get me by email, text, or Twitter. Here's Randy's contact information. Randy doesn't do Facebook or Twitter. He's not giving his text number. So you can email him or send him smoke signals. Those are the the only two ways. Do that right now. Go ahead. Send us a text. Send us an email. And what we will do is we will get back to you on that. Okay, last one. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Last saying no. 
In everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This is about saying no to sin. Jesus puts a positive spin on on a rule that existed in in Jewish thought, which was don't, don't do the hateful thing to somebody that you don't want them to do to you. But Jesus puts the positive spin on it and makes it a complete rule. Because if you, if you only go through life saying, I'm not going to do hurtful things to others, then, then complete inactivity would actually put you in, in a good spot. You'd be fulfilling that rule. But Jesus says, no, you actually ought to be proactively doing the good to other people that you want them doing to you. So he puts this in a very positive, proactive, comprehensive type rule. And what he's saying here is, you just got to fundamentally say no to sin. And so the parenting tip here is, parents, if you don't want your kids to do it, don't do it either. Say no to your own sin. Fight your own sinful nature. If you don't want your kids to do it, then you don't do it either. Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17 give us this either-or type of proposition. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. If you're saying yes to your sinful nature, you are saying no to God's Spirit. And if you are saying yes to God's Spirit, you are by definition saying no to your sinful nature. And so you engage in the fight on that level. And here's something I've, I've realized about myself. My worst parenting moments and it's probably true of you, your worst parenting moments are not because you need to read another parenting book. Your worst parenting moments are because you said yes to your sinful nature. And right now, chances are something's popping in your mind, and that's because the Holy Spirit is active right now, pointing these things out to you, saying you need to fight in that area of your life to say yes to the Spirit and no to your sinful nature. So if you want to fight the good fight as a parent on behalf of your kids, have the courage to say no to those three things. The courage to say no to short-sighted worldliness, the courage to say no to worry, and the courage to say no to your sinful nature. So that by you saying no, your kids learn from watching you and they learn how to say no too. The one thing we all need to hear as parents, or not parents, whoever we are, is the beckoning of Jesus to take the narrow road and expect it to be hard. In so doing, we live the kinds of lives where we can say to our kids, follow me as I follow Jesus. So may you walk the narrow road. May you embrace the difficulty of doing so. May you never give up. May you have the courage to say no. On all four campuses, we're going to move into a time of worship. We're going to worship the Lord with our tithes and our offerings. We're going to celebrate communion together. So I want to pray for all of us at every campus. And then I'm going to turn it over to the worship leaders at all the campuses. Let me pray for you. God, we've gathered in this place, to worship you, to gather together with your people, to learn from you through the teaching of your word. And God, I pray right now that by your spirit, you would help us. God, you'd empower us to have the courage to do the things we know we ought to be doing. Help us to choose Jesus, to choose the narrow road. 
to embrace the difficulty of it, to live lives that are worthy of emulation by the generation coming behind us. God, as we worship you, we want our whole lives to be an act of worship. The songs we sing, but also the way we manage our resources in recognition of your provision. So God, we worship you with our tithes and our offerings. God, we give you all of our focus, all of our attention, all of our worship, because you are worthy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.